You are listening to The Promise of Personalized Medicine, brought to you by Access DX. This is a show for the lab professionals and medical directors who bring forward novel diagnostic tests to advance modern medicine. Let's dive into the conversation. Joining the podcast this afternoon, great to see you and have you on. Well, thank you very much, Perry. It's an honor to be here. Great. So as you know, the podcast is all about personalized medicine, and you have a unique experiences throughout your lifetime of seeing the various types of personalized medicine from different vantage points. So if we could just start by just tell us, you know, what is personalized medicine to you? Yeah, and personalized medicine, I, I play with it every day, both uh, in my work and in my life, right? I, it's no secret, and I've never sheltered it from anyone else. I'm in a national clinical trial myself at the National Institutes of Health, Building 10. And that is part of why I do what I do every day. And it, it's why we exist. So personalized medicine has only been probably in place for what? Very Perry, 10 years now, and with a real focus maybe for the last eight. I remember that CMS, NIH, and the FDA first got together to talk about personalized medicine, and it was in 2015. I think that was the first year that they had a trilateral meeting to talk about it. And and at that time, the FDA said, you know, we're, we're studying, we're, we're giving a lot of grants and a lot of money to do research in personalized medicine. And FDA and NIH said, well, yeah, and we're funding it very largely. And, and they said, CMS, what are you doing? And CMS said, we're not doing anything yet, but we'd like to get in the game. And actually, that's when I first went to CMS. They recruited me up, and I worked in coverage and analysis group in 2016. And, and that's when sort of CMS finally got involved in the whole idea of personalized medicine. So, And that's coverage not only of tests that are in the uh, tumor space, the somatic mutations, but also over into the hereditary space as well. So, And I'm deeply involved with that every day. I spend most of my day-to-day dealing with the new coding system, the new codes that have come out from the AMA, and I'm on an AMA work group, which is covering carrier screening and some other, other tests right now. That's interesting, the context that you give us. Cause, so it's been less than a decade since that important meeting from the governmental agencies, if you will, right. which is incredible if you think about it. Yeah. It's only been eight years since they recognized it, of course. Funding and research and the labs, we've been at it for, for 15 or more years. Yeah. And would you say that CMS has taken the lead when you think of it from a laboratory medicine vantage point for personalized medicine? Would you agree with that or what, what do you think of that? I think not. I think the, you know, the tests that we have in the space of personalized medicine and others, starting with foundation medicine, if you will, preceded CMS getting involved. And so CMS came to the game kind of late. Now, fortunately, the, the way Medicare was set up with a relatively weak central office and more powerful MACs to make decisions for patients' care, then the decisions for MACs allows for the coverage of tests for Medicare for Medicare beneficiaries. And with the innovative tests that were covered by Moldex, that really sort of set the standard. So, and really, Moldex has taken a one of the lead roles, if you will, as I'll call it a super Mac. I know it's not a Mac, but it's a it's still a pilot, I believe. 
yeah. isn't it? Yeah, the the original idea that Mike Barlow, let's give him credit for both the, that, and Mike Barlow got Elaine Jeter together and they said, let's try this system. We have a, a way to classify tests with Z codes. And they set up the DEC system. And they said, now let's let's also go into this space and take a look at it and, and cover these tests if they show clinical utility. So they started it and they did just a, a beautiful, brilliant experiment in going after the molecular diagnostic space. So remember that the Secretary of Health and Human Services has the authority to name between one and three max to cover a specified area of Medicare coverage. And right now there are only two max, for example, in durable medical equipment. So it is possible for the Secretary of Health and Human Services to designate one, two, or three max to be in charge of, let's say, molecular diagnostics. That is within their purview. They don't need to have any special acts of Congress to do that. So that is a possibility. Now, of course, the, the contracts would need to be tweaked with all the MACs if there were one or two or three that covered molecular diagnostics. And it would be a logical assumption that Moldex Palmetto would be one of those candidates. And since Moldex through Palmetto, they've been at it and kind of the creation of it, as you just articulated, would be a player. And what's interesting is that they have had success with getting other Macs that has kind of come under the, I'll call it the Moldex umbrella, if you will, from, from a policy standpoint, right? Right. So when Moldex originally was proposed as a programmer pilot, it was interesting because Palmetto at that time had California under its jurisdiction. And so it was logical to give that Moldex pilot plan, if you will, to Palmetto, which had jurisdiction over California. By the time the plan was ruled out, Moldex said Palmetto had lost California. And so now, now you've got Noridian in California and a program that was set up for Moldex sitting in Palmetto. And so early on, there was a joint operating agreement, which was uh, signed by Noridian along with WPS and eventually CGS, that the Max, those Macs would act together and support Moldex policy. That's great. That's interesting. And from that vantage point, then you go to, if you don't mind talking about your other vantage point, what you're currently doing right now, you see a lot of, we'll call it nascent personalized medicine diagnostic testing kind of coming your way. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And my particular job is at LabCorp. And we try to cover genetic tests from pre-embryo all the way until the patient has expired. Now, you're not going to have a lot of genetic tests when you're getting ready to expire, but a lot of the elderly do, in fact, have cancers, which are genomically driven. And so we try to cover that entire space. That's interesting. So you have uh, organizations, I assume, come to you at LabCorp and ask for either guidance or strategic partnership or what have you, right? Yeah. So LabCorp is a is a, like I'm sure Quest and a number of our competing labs open to and interested in all the science in the space. So we welcome collaboration. We welcome participation. We encourage uh, companies who have novel assays come and talk to us. We have a venture fund as well. I'm associated with our venture fund. It's not a large fund. We don't do seed money, but we'll, we'll jump in and make an, a venture into a company, whether we're ultimately going to commercialize their assay or, or whether we're going to, you know, 
think of a merger and acquisition with that company. Interesting. Yeah. So when you take a look at the companies that are, you know, coming out with novel diagnostics, are there some mistakes that you've seen in the past where some missteps, if you will? Yeah, I think the probably the commonest one, Perry, that I've seen, and, and we've been guilty of it ourselves, is when the test is not mature, when you haven't proven your clinical utility and you go out early into the market, you're going to beg for coverage and you're probably not going to get a lot of commercial coverage unless you can really show that utility piece. And I think in the enthusiasm of the new assay showing that it can detect a certain disease with a certain biomarker, without those complete studies of that utility piece, how it's going to end up benefiting patients with living longer or living better, you got a problem. And so you got to apply the brakes. You got to get some more funding. You've got to prove yourself before you go on the market. And I think that's a big issue out there, right? And, and you hit on it, go, go get more funding because I think sometimes the thought is that you're a little bit further along than in reality you are. So it's kind of hard to go back and say, oh, I need a couple more million dollars to do this to demonstrate clinical utility. And I'm sure the board of directors kind of like, well, that's not what you told us six months ago. (laughs) And I think it's, it's toughest in the screening space, right? That is where things really get tough. Screening tests are really hard to do, aren't they? Aren't they, Perry? You know, you've got a, you've got a disease like ovarian cancer, which 38,000 women a year who might have ovarian cancer. And yet that is still a incredibly rare occurrence for the entire population. So while 38,000 patients might get it to pick them up when they're asymptomatic, you're talking population screening. And it's something like an annual incidence of 0.0038% of the population. So when you run the numbers, your, your specificity has to be so high in order to have a very successful, or you're going to have way too many false positive tests. You're going to have a thousand positives of which 38 maybe have the disease. And you just can't do that. So the assay has to be really rigorous in the screening space. And we have to follow that longitudinally in order to say, yeah, their, their signal is correct or not. So screening is a tough space to get into. Yeah, that's a great point. And I mean, you brought up earlier how kind of the CMS came in later than the other agencies, we'll call it, which is probably was appropriate, right? But if you think about health plans from a commercial standpoint, what do you think when you're talking with them, what's their take, if you will, on personalized medicine and the role of it? Because I think it's kind of like a a bipartisan issue, right? Everyone's for personalized medicine. Of course you want personalized medicine. But from a, a commercial health plan standpoint, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? Yeah, you know, commercial health plans are real interesting to deal with and very level-headed in some respects. If we bring a new assay to them and say, this is a $3,000 for for victims of X disease, and it's going to really help them live a little longer or a little better. And they they turn around and they sit and think for a minute, and and they turn around and they say to me, well, you know, we've got 10,000 of our 4 million members we're now going to get that $3,000 test. So we're now putting out $30 million more per year. And what are we going to get for it? 
So they're very pragmatic and very practical in, a, in that sense. So I, I urge, I do it internally and I do it externally as well. If you're going to have an assay which is $3,000 and it's going to affect 10,000 members of a 4 million member health plan, be sure you run those numbers and say, hey, it's going to cost you $30 million next year, but here's what you're going to get. You're going to have fewer patients on X, fewer patients on Y, X patients living longer, fewer patients on radiation therapy, whatever the metric is. You've got to show them and not be shy about it, but you got to be upfront and say, yep, it's going to cost you $30 million in testing for that, but here's your gain. Here's what your beneficiaries are going to get out. And it's very, it's very, it's just, you can run the numbers and they will run the numbers. They'll run the numbers before you walk in. So be sure to have that in the back of your mind or front of your mind. They're going to live longer. They're going to live better, or they're going to be treated differently. Be sure you know that right up front. So you're saying you better do the financial impact work because if you don't, they will. They will do it anyway, right? Even if they're going to do it. Yeah. E e even if on yep. the medical side, the medical directors say, we don't consider the finances part of it where this is purely, you're saying go ahead and do it anyway. Yeah. No, remember there's kind of a split, right? CMS claims that they don't do it, that it's based only on the better outcome of the, of the patient. Well, we know they do it because take a look at the drugs for Alzheimer's. So we know that they do it in that space, but, but technically they don't use economic metrics. You can't take an HEOR study to Medicare. They forget. But the commercial space, absolutely take an HEOR study. You just got to go in with that. Absolutely. Yeah. On the front end. Because at the end of the day, these are insurance companies and they have lots of actuaries and this is what they do. Right. That's exactly right. I, I wouldn't ever want to be an actor. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not. Well, I hope my brother-in-law is That's not right. One. I'll send it to him. How do you think we, as a laboratory industry, how, we, how are we doing when we're trying to clearly articulate the value of what we're doing to these commercial health plans? I think we could do a better job across the board. Now, I haven't been a party to too many presentations other than our, my, our own, but when I was in the position as medical director at Moldex, as an example, we had everybody come in. And, and I, think, I think the game has gotten better in the last two or three years from what I can hear and from what I see, and that people now are preparing their utility studies more completely. They're preparing their HEOR statements more completely. They're more worried about that on the front end. You know, just not too many years ago, when you had a lab test, oh, let's get our code now. <laughs> and let's get our coding and our reimbursement and our PLA code before they've even run a clinical utility study. And so they had the cart before the horse. So now we're, we're, finally, we're finally getting where we should be, I think, a little bit better all across the board. Yeah. Once a quarter, Access DX gathers a group of medical directors to advise laboratory innovators and to stay current on the ever-evolving trends in medical advancements. We would love to partner with more medical directors so that you can influence the next generation of modern medicine. If you're interested, please send a quick email to info at accessdx.com and connect with us on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash company slash accessdx. And now back to the show. So coding, because I, I know that you're very knowledgeable and, 
instrumental in that area. So tell me your take on where you've been, the current situation, and if you will, kind of, if you'd like to, where do you think we're going to go from here? Yeah, we're not in a good space. AMA coding is grossly inferior and incomplete. It's not getting better. Now, I'm, I'm giving that disclaimer that I'm currently on the PLA Technical Advisor Group and give too many hours to it. I am also on the AMA's GSP, Genomic Sequencing Procedure Work Group, and give too many hours to it. But despite these efforts, the AMA is not making a useful final solution. There's the Z code option from Moldex, from DEX. And is the Z code the answer? And I would argue that's not the answer either. It, it, it's a partial answer. It's an answer which will work in some respects because it classifies each test individually, and that's good. And then, of course, there's the concert genetics approach, which is the third answer or solution. And it has its merits. I like it a lot. But there's no single solution yet that's working for everyone. Remember, Medicare has granted that monopoly license to the American Medical Association to force the code use and to charge handsomely for that opportunity, which it doesn't make a lot of sense because ICD-10 codes, which must accompany that report, that bill from the provider, are matched with the CPT codes, which are costly in order for the transaction to work. So there are a lot of moving parts, no perfect solution yet. I am you know, interested in how it's going to evolve. And we are trying our best to participate with everyone who's trying to propose a good solution. But I, I don't see a good one quite yet. Yeah. It seems like there's various solutions out there, none comprehensive as you would hope for. Yeah. Okay. And if you look and say, well, Perry, if what, they, what we should do is, what is the, comp in your opinion, what is the best way to move forward from just a coding perspective? You need to identify, and, and in this respect, both concert and the Z code system have it right. You need to specifically identify each test by site of that test, that NPI associated test. It needs to be recognized. It gives it some credibility because then you can interrogate that, that particular code to make sure it has clinical validity. It has analytic validity. You can do an interrogation so that nonsense claims are not paid. What an embarrassment that one of our Macs allowed claims in the hundreds of millions of dollars in the last five years for genetic tests on elderly patients from a swab in a rest home. That is a, a horrible scandal. And that wouldn't have happened if there was a better way to identify those claims coming in as being specifically from a certain lab for a specific test with proper controls. So we don't have the answer yet, but you know, that somehow we got to get to it. Yeah. It is an expansion of PLA really in essence what we're talking about or not? Well, some system, which is a hybrid of PLA and Z codes and concert genetics approach, something like that, I think would work. You got the obstacle in front of us of the, of CMS mandating the AMA code set. So we've got a political obstacle there and maybe a financial one um, that's still in our way. Yeah, because as you know, then 
you know, with the Z codes, uh, United's taken that and said, well, I'll, I'll commercialize that. Right. So yeah, United's not alone. Avalon also is saying they're going to use them. And we expect many more commercial companies start using Z code. We expect that'll, that's a wave. Yeah. I mean, to make it even a bigger problem is that you could probably, what we're probably going to have happen is dependent on health plan. They'll say, this plan will say, well, send me the Z code. This plan will say, send me a GTU code. And this other group will say, well, send me a PLA with a whatever right. modifier. Right. Right. And then your billing group will look at you and say, how am I supposed to execute on that? Yeah. And in the meanwhile, the Z codes don't cost you. And the mandated system is CPT. So no, no. And remember also, remember now also, uh, technically speaking, Z codes are not HIPAA compliant. So is that how initially they, my word, squashed Z codes when it was with McKesson? Yeah. I was not a party to the early discussions of Z codes and their use, but there was definite concern that the Z codes now, and I'm not talking about ICD-10 Z codes. I'm talking about the DEX change healthcare original elucidation. Yeah. There was pressure not to use them because they're not HIPAA compliant. And again, the, sec the, the Secretary of Health and Human Services has the authority to designate any code set as being HIPAA compliant. So that doesn't require legislation. It requires a check by the box. Really? Yeah. Okay. I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now we're back into politics. So potentially, uh, you know, what you're saying is a couple of things. They could expand Moldex into being the super Mac if you will, right. for molecular yep. diagnostics. Right. And at the same time, they could say, okay, the Z codes that you're using, those are compliant and can be used whenever for, for, yeah. for billing well, purposes. Sure. Well, a couple things could happen. One, Moldex could become the MAC in the U.S. for molecular diagnostic testing. That would not require an act of Congress. That could be done by the secretary. Okay, now, so now Moldex is making the decisions for molecular diagnostic testing. In essence, anything supported by Moldex is now an NCD. It doesn't have that national coverage label on it anymore, but if you got your test covered by Moldex, it's covered nationally. No more questions. Everything is answered right there. So now Moldex is holding on to that. So I, I think CMS Central might resist that a little bit. And I don't think the secretary is going to make such a designation out of, out of thin air. So there might be some resistance from CMS Central to having Moldex being the uniform. But if they did, now you're operating with Z codes across the nation for all Medicare. You now add United Healthcare into it, and it's in the commercial space as well. So I think until somebody challenges that HIPAA-compliant issue, it's de facto, it's working. Because you know, United's using it. Avalon's using it. Some commercial plants are using it. So now you have a whole system based on Z codes. Yeah. Which is interesting because you're technically don't need AMA anymore. Yeah. I was just going to, I was just thinking the only group that would come out against that would be the AMA. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. So I think coding has been a challenge and there are some solutions out there that may assist us. And I think we've, we've come a long way in the last decade for sure from a coding perspective. 
And I would say coverage has been going along as far as, I mean, I remember when clinical utility was kind of a new thing. Now everyone understands clinical utility. I think it's still challenging to define clinical utility in a way that we'll say the majority of commercial health plans will say, yes, I agree with that, right? And that delays the adoption curve, if you will, for these tests, which puts a lot of financial pressure on these organizations, these companies that are putting out these yep. good, important tests. Yeah, it, it does. And, you know, that traditional Medicare definition of clinical utility, the results of the tests change a physician's behavior and it results in a better outcome. That's a long sentence, right? Because if you remember in 2016 or thereabouts, AMP came out with their own alternative clinical utility definition, which was information about that patient is, is a useful item and it, it has utility as well. So, and then when we talk about the, this might be most useful if we think of Alzheimer's. So if you had a really good diagnostic test for Alzheimer's tomorrow and you got it out, so what is the clinical utility of Alzheimer's. It changes the management of the physician, but it doesn't result in a better outcome for the patient. Unless you can show that maybe the patient, knowing that they've got it, can plan better for how, to, how their life is going to go. But until there are really therapeutics for some of these, proving that you have a better outcome for that patient is really difficult, right? So, but that's why AMP argued that the classic definition of utility, that better outcome piece, information alone is, is, is useful. And, but CMS still hasn't bought that. The commercial companies still haven't bought it very much either. There's a lot of resistance there to change that traditional paradigm. Yeah. Because information to a commercial health plan is not sufficient, no. right? Not at all. No, it, it, it's, it's too costly. If you will. going back to your, you know, the actuaries, if you will, they're, they're, they're running the numbers and say, well, if at the end of the result, the same things are going to happen and the same procedures, same tests and same outcome, then why are we paying for this additional two or three things? Right? Right. That's good. So I guess my last question is if you could, what would you suggest companies do more of or differently? If there's one thing, one thing I would, uh, again, I'd go back and I would really, you got to have a very, very well-defined intended use because too many tests come to the market a little fuzzy, right? Really. We've got our test and it's going to diagnose. Let's use that ovarian cancer example again. We've got a test and we're going to be the best tested to diagnose ovarian cancer early before it causes all its damage. And then they morph a little bit because then they find that the assay has a little bit of, you know, it's not that specific. It's 98% specific. So you got all these false positives. So they, well, wait a minute. What we really meant was that it diagnoses ovarian cancer really early in a subset of patients who have increased risk of ovarian cancer or have a family history of ovarian cancer or a genetic history of BRCA1, BRCA2. So now they've shrunk their population that they're really dealing with. So now it's not a breakthrough in ovarian cancer diagnosis. It's now a very small population that they're dealing with. So start with a very clear intended use. That'd be number one. 
Number two, get involved with as many studies as you can. You know, get partnership with academic centers. Don't be afraid of it. Get your test out there. Science is fun. Learning is fun. There might, you know, so you learn from every exercise that you do throwing your test out. So get as many partners as you can. Do not fear those results. Embrace them. Refine your assay. Get the test out to as many people as you can. Have them run the test. See if it works. Give it to another lab. See if it performs the same way. Do those exercises up front. Those are really critical. And much more on the clinical test performance in the clinic way before you want to run it, you know, so commercially. That's great. That'd be my mix. Yeah, no, that, that's great advice. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, great having you. And we really appreciate uh, everything that you uh, are doing and look forward to uh, the next adventure that you're on. Thank you very much, Perry. I like your podcast a lot, yeah, although it just dropped a notch because you had me on. <laughs> but it's a good podcast and I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me and always good to work with you. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to The Promise of Personalized Medicine, produced by Amplify Podcasts and original music by Jake Demas. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. And if you like what you've heard, we would love to hear from you with a rating or a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Until next time.